1962, the Incredible Hulk made his debut as a Marvel comic superhero. I think this is issue one of that series. This green-skinned superhuman possessed seemingly limitless strength, while his alter ego, Dr. Bruce Banner, was physically and emotionally weak and socially withdrawn. Inspired by the classic Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, when under no stress, Dr. Bruce Banner lived a fairly normal life as a research scientist. He was content to be left alone, but when mistreated by others, the good doctor would undergo a radical transformation of both personality and character, and a giant monster, green monster, would appear. This green monster had all the physical power needed to impose his will on others. The primary emotion of the Hulk was anger and woe to whomever got in his way. Dr. Banner didn't want to be angry. I grew up in the 70s watching the televised version, but it was when he was pushed too far, people would regret toying with him. Even as a young boy, the message seemed clear. The means to real power is one's anger. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Kelly and I serve as senior pastor. It's my pleasure to open God's word with us this morning. We're making our way slowly through the book of Deuteronomy. And for the last several weeks, we've been considering the Ten Commandments. This morning, commandment number six. If you're thinking, what about number five? I'm glad you're paying attention. I thought it would be better to do number five, honor mom and dad, next week uh, on Father's Day. So for this morning, number six, I rearranged them a little bit. Here it is on the screen, short and sweet, you shall not murder. Contrary to popular confusion, this commandment does not prohibit killing altogether. The grammar of the original Hebrew is prohibiting something very specific, murder, that is the premeditate, premeditated taking of innocent life for personal gain. This means the command does not apply to killing of animals for food or defending one's home or even accidental death or the execution of criminals by civil authorities or policing actions of our nation or international policing actions. While each of these issues are addressed in other portions of the Mosaic Law, the Sixth Commandment is limited just to prohibiting murder, very specific taking of innocent life. One of the best known examples of this type of sin is the first recorded crime in the Bible, that is Cain killing his brother Abel. Now, interestingly, God warned Cain of what you might call his Hulkian tendencies, right? God warned Cain about his anger and its explosive capacity. In Genesis 4, we read, why are you angry? God asks Cain. And God never asks a question because he's short on answers. <laughs> He's trying to awaken to Cain. He wants to invite Cain here. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. 
It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, I realize few of us are struggling with the temptation to murder someone this morning. All of us struggle with anger. And Jesus highlighted the connection between anger and murder in his famous Sermon on the Mount. In the sixth uh, command, we learn that God values life, but it's not only the act of murder that is sinful, but, but also the sentiments, the thoughts, and the feelings underlying that, that are, are sinful. And this is where I'll focus this morning. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 in your copy of the Scripture. Follow along as I read verses 21 to 26 of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking. It's his longest recorded sermon in Scripture. It runs Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're at the front end, and throughout this first section of the Sermon on the Mount, he's revisiting the commands. So Matthew 5, 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Sixth command, don't murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who's angry. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. I'll do my best to define that term in a moment. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. For this reason, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. That fascinates me. If you're in worship, if you're at the altar, and you remember that somebody else may be growing in their anger against you. Someone else may have a problem of anger. Leave your gift at the altar and go. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. So God values human life. That's command number six. Don't murder. Don't, don't take innocent life. It leads to the prohibition that we're all so familiar with. And the collective despair and the revulsion we feel at what happened in Uvalde, Texas, is an indication that we inherently understand the value of human life. Every time there's a, a mass murder, a, a shooting of that sort, we're overwhelmed and with the feelings again. They wash over us at despair and revulsion, one and the same. It, who would do this and how could this be done? Jesus' teaching on the sixth commandment, though, raises the bar. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you. Anyone who's angry with their brother is in danger of judgment. He moves it from simply a physical prohibition against taking 
life, innocent life, to including both our head and our heart as well. He's calling us to carefully tend the soil of our hearts and minds. Be careful, because we could easily cultivate the seeds of anger, foment those, the anger that leads to murder. In verse 22 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, Anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Someone always asks, does that mean Christians can never get angry? I hope that's not the case. (laughs) Because I can easily imagine situations in which failing to show anger would be sinful. And of course, you may remember that Jesus expressed anger. He actually braided a whip and cleared the temple of its money changers, angry about how God's house, the temple, was being used for selfish gain. Jesus expressed anger. And of course, God is angry at human sin. He's not happy about human sin. So anger, not all anger is wrong. And again, there are many situations that if we don't feel some anger, something's wrong. Like all emotions, anger is a functional part of our awareness system. Anger is given by God in some instances to help us. Anger alerts us to experiences that seem unfair, whether to us or to those that we love. Much like the Coast Guard patrols our nation's shorelines, anger is the emotion that patrols the waters of our life, looking for violations against us or our people, those we care for. Obviously, this means that some of our anger is justified and appropriate, other anger is not, which means that when we feel angry, we've got to ask ourselves at least two questions. First, is my anger justified? Is what I'm feeling accurate, uh, uh, a God-ordained reflection of the experience I'm, I'm having? And number two, how can I express my anger constructively, not destructively? At least two questions we need to ask. Is it justified? How can I express it constructively? For example, if I'm angry because someone lied to me or lied about me, then my anger is justified. But if I'm angry because I didn't win the lottery, it's not justified. I have a better chance of getting struck by lightning than winning the lottery. Because some of our anger is justified, That means it can be helpful if handled appropriately. It can help me. It can help those I love. It can help those I don't know well. Remember, God wired us to feel, so our feelings are meant to help us manage life. Justified anger, when handled appropriately, can give us, for example, the courage to ask for a raise at work or to confront an abuser. Anger is helpful if and when we heed the alert that it's providing to us, invent our anger in constructive ways. Of course, anger can also be hurtful. Anger can be hurtful if we harbor it, pretending it isn't there. Anger can be hurtful if we store it up, waiting to unleash it at the the time that's well, best for us in a Hulkian fashion. And anger is a strange emotion 
because it doesn't go away if we ignore it. Did you know that? And it doesn't necessarily go away if we unleash it in destructive fashion. Anger unleashed inappropriately can actually become more powerful in our lives. We can grow even more out of control the more we unleash it in inappropriate ways. And ignoring our anger is not a recipe for success. It doesn't just go away. I've done enough counseling, meaning I've set in counselor's offices myself asking for help with issues to know that to pretend I'm not anger can often, be, can often fuel depression. Anger just doesn't go away. It has to be addressed. And then it has to be expressed in productive ways. Which means that the best description of the sinful expression of anger that Jesus is warning against here is probably best described as hate. So it's not that all anger is wrong. Jesus is warning us about how we express our anger. In fact, in the book of 1 John, we read, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. He seems to be gleaning from Jesus' teaching out of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's not saying that all anger is wrong. He's saying a particular style or fashion of anger, this hate, the fomenting, the growing of anger in, in, in condemning somebody or attacking, lashing out, or wishing someone harm. Hate. His brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in Christ. So when we get angry with someone, the goal is to avoid allowing our anger to grow into hate. And Jesus gave a couple specific examples of how we need to be careful in that regard, what that might look like. One of the examples Jesus gives is this word, raka, kind of an interesting word. Uh, it's hard to translate into English because it describes a tone of voice or a posture as much as a particular English word. The implication is that to say to your brother Raka is to feel contempt for your brother. To feel contempt towards someone. And then to say the word is to demean them or to want to humiliate them. If you feel contempt, if you say demeaning things to others then you, you're fomenting hate in your life. Be warned, judgment's ahead for those that, ha that cultivate this type of anger. Jesus also gives the example of calling someone a fool. In the ancient world, to call someone a fool was to attempt to take a man's reputation. You, you want to do more than demean them, you want to brand them as immoral publicly. This level of anger often takes the form of gossip or slander as we spread rumors about others in an attempt to tear them down. How many families and friendships and churches have been destroyed by gossip, by slander? And the potential punishment for such behavior is severe as a result. Jesus says those who do such are in danger of the fires of hell. For this reason, Interestingly, Jesus segues next to how we can care for someone. He talks about our responsibility to help people who may be angry at us. 
Jesus encourages us to reach out to others. Isn't that fascinating? We're not only to be careful about the anger we may feel towards others, what we're cultivating, we're to be on guard about what others may be feeling towards us because of our behavior. And we're to care for them, we're to go to them. Verse 23, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, look out for them, care for them. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. He cares about our relationships with each other. So damaging is the fomenting of anger in the community of God in, in relationship that we need to actually be thinking about, gosh, have I left them in a way that they're in danger of the fires of hell. They're in danger of cultivating anger and thus breaking the sixth commandment. Have you ever wronged someone and then callously thought to yourself, they're going to let me know if I hurt them. Uh, they'll tell me if we got a problem. That posture is not biblical. Jesus teaches us that we should reach out to those we may have hurt and help them avoid the dangers of anger. As followers of Christ, we're to help others by inviting reconciliation. How are our hearts this morning? How are our relationships? Are we harboring anger, cultivating a garden of bitterness, refusing to forgive? Are we demeaning? Are we slandering? Are we gossiping against others? Do we know someone that may be angry at us and we've left them alone with their feelings to deal with it as best they can? They'll get over it. If they've got something to say to me, they should come get it done. I ask how we're doing because, man, this is a great place to deal with God's Word. At the end of every service, we, in most services, we close by singing and we have people down front to pray. I'd invite you to pray. Paul offers a prescription when we are angry. He writes, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. I wonder if, or how, I wonder if the devil has a foothold in some of our lives. I wonder if the enemy might want to gain, certainly gain a foothold in our families, in our church. Are we taking the necessary actions to make sure that doesn't happen? To protect our families, to protect our church, our friendships. I'll give some thoughts on Paul's remedies here. A couple practical applications. Explore your feelings of anger regularly and prayerfully. I wonder how many of us grew up in homes where anger was uh, shunned. You were never to express anger. Let's pretend that that feeling doesn't exist. You certainly shouldn't ever, you shouldn't explore it. You shouldn't express it. And so we just bottle it up. Paul wrote something interesting, and he said, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, which is a call, in my estimation, 
to regularly explore and prayerfully explore our anger. Don't, don't let the day wrap up without uh, paying attention to what you're feeling, particularly if it's anger, and prayerfully considering what has caused anger for you. Remember, the goal here is don't give Satan a foothold. Remember, anger is an emotion given by God, but it's also a secondary emotion. Did you know that? It's not a primary emotion. By secondary, what I mean there is there are other feelings that fuel it, feelings of disappointment, discouragement, hurt, loss, sadness, fuel anger in our lives. Someone sneaks up on us in the dark, scares us. Well, our fear fuels our anger. We get angry. Anger is the response to the primary emotion of fear. We lash out. We need to regularly and prayerfully explore anger because it's a secondary emotion. It takes some working through. Why do I feel the way I feel? Lord, help me understand. Asking God for understanding about whether our anger is justified and then how best we might constructively express it. In some cases, we're going to need people's help. (laughs) We're going to need the help of friends, to process, hey, here's what I'm feeling. I don't want to give Satan a foothold. I'm trying, I've got anger. I'm trying not to sin in my anger. Help me. We may need the help of a counselor, someone who's paid and skilled in helping walk us out of the woods. Paul also wrote, put off falsehood, speak truthfully. This is especially important for those who are pretending never to be angry or denying their anger. Those who are harboring unjustified anger, inappropriate anger. Some of us grew up in homes, again, that taught us anger is bad, never express it, never explore it. And we're told to put off falsehood. We're told to acknowledge we feel angry, in other words. We're to tell the truth about what we're feeling. Make sure you understand, Paul doesn't say anger is wrong, anger is bad. He says don't sin in your anger. Use your anger for the collective good. There should be an outrage over what took place in Uvalde. And there should be a collective anger that results in some good. When lied to, there should be an appropriate anger and a response that that deals with that situation. So anger's not bad. He's warning us, do not sin in your anger. Put off falsehood. Speak truthfully. And again, that may take, well, often does, take the help of friends to identify what is untrue in a situation and embrace what is true and to speak what's true. That takes work. Sometimes we don't address our anger just because there's so much work to be done there. We're lazy. Some of us have anger that we've stored up for years and we just, we want to keep it bottled up. It's not serving us well. The truth is that showing our anger, exploring it, expressing it, showing it in constructive ways may be the most God-honoring response we can offer in a situation. Too many of us know what we feel, but we don't know why we feel what we feel. Too often we're undisciplined in exploring our feelings. 
Often we say to ourselves, it'll go away in time. I'll get over it. Sometimes we know exactly why we feel angry and we simply don't want to address the primary feelings, the disappointment, the loss, the sadness. We're to put off falsehood. We're to tell the truth about what we're feeling and experiencing. Second, I hear in Paul's application, talk to those whom you're angry with, with whom you're angry. Don't talk about people. That's gossip. Rather, talk to those with whom you're angry. And talk about what made you angry. Put off falsehood. Stop pretending that you aren't angry. Start, stop harboring bitterness. Speak truthfully. Why? Because we're members of one body, Paul says. In other words, what's good for the nose is good for the elbow and the hand. and that we're, we're one unit. I would explore and express my anger in constructive ways because it's good for somebody, if, if they hurt me, to hear that they hurt me. Admittedly, some of us are not ready to speak to the person with whom we feel angry. It may take time to process the anger before you can express it to that person in a constructive way. I'm not saying to rush the process, but I am saying it's okay and it's valuable. We're members of one body. In some situations, you may need a referee so that further damage isn't done. A third party who's willing to listen to both sides and help bring reconciliation and restoration. That's an important part of what it means to be a member of a body, playing that part for each other. Third, keep short accounts. Paul says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, which doesn't mean you can't go to bed until everything's settled. Let's be honest. Some issues aren't worked out in a single evening. I have issues in my own life that aren't going to get worked out in a single evening. Rather, the posture here is one of urgency and diligence. Are we diligent around the anger that we feel? Make it a priority to work through the anger, to, to talk with those that have hurt you or that you feel you may have hurt. Clean up the emotional mess. If we don't, it could give Satan a foothold. Failing to explore our anger regularly and prayerfully, failing to express our anger constructively, bottling it up, could cause depression, you know, one of the things, anger comes out sideways. You ever hear that? One of the, one of the things I have noticed in pastoral ministry is anger unaddressed, anger uh, that we don't feel we can express constructively, we have to do something with the emotion. We need to address the emotion. It's, bo it's bottled up. It's inside us. Lots of people cultivate addictions to deal with unaddressed anger. I would encourage you, next time you have your favorite sin that you're running to, and you think, gosh, here I am again at my favorite sin, the one I've told the Lord I don't want to be here, just do a quick survey and see if it's possible that unaddressed anger is fueling the behavior. 
Because anger unaddressed, anger pent up, bitterness, right? Depression. And then for depression, we need some salve for our soul, ungodly behaviors. Some sort of self-medication that tells us our feelings matter, we're valuable, which is all the hard work's needed to be done if we're going to address our, our anger. We're saying, hey, I don't deserve to be treated this way. That felt unfair to me. Folks, that's why people go to addictions, because they want to know they matter. They want someone or something to say to them, your emotions are valid. I'll care for you. And we just end up ensnared, entangled in sin. Ultimately, the way out of anger is forgiveness. We're to regularly and prayerfully explore our anger. We're to talk with those whom are angry, with, who we're angry with or who might be angry with us. We're to keep short accounts not to give, so that we don't give Satan a foothold. But even after we express our anger and, and we're sitting with the person that made us angry and we're, we're sharing that, folks, the goal is forgiveness. The goal is restoration. The goal is reconciliation. Some of us may be holding on to our anger because we don't want to enter into a process of forgiveness. And I always feel like I need to say at this juncture that forgiving someone is not approving of their behavior. God forgave us in Christ and in no way approves of our sinful behavior. And he's no way passively or he's in no way permissive saying, oh, keep sinning. No, Christ died and he's calling us to righteousness. We're to be reconciled to God. And so when we forgive others, we're not giving permission for them to continue in their bad behavior by, that fueled our anger. No, we're trying to address it. We want to stand up straight. We want to relate to them in healthier ways, more functional ways. Learning to forgive and to be reconciled takes real work. It most often does not happen overnight. And some of us are carrying hurts that are deep and go back many years. And I want to encourage us to do the work. I want to encourage us to do the work because God invites us to it, because uh, forgiveness sets us free. There's freedom, there's joy on the other side. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to pray for your care of us as a community, that uh, Satan would not get a foothold in our community, in our families, in our friendships. We do the hard work of expressing, exploring and expressing our anger in constructive ways, prayerfully and with those that can help us and give us advice. I pray that we keep short accounts. We'd stop talking about people and we'd, stop, and we'd start talking to the people uh, that we're frustrated with or angry towards. I pray also that we would have a, a posture towards each other in, in which we're caring for one another. If, if we feel someone else may be angry towards us, we'd be eager for reconciliation. We'd go to those people directly. We ask for your goodness to us in all this. In Jesus' name, amen.